letter of 1 John, which is almost at the end of the New Testament. I invite you to turn to 1 John chapter 4, if you will. You go all the way to the end of the book of Revelation and then back up just a little, and you come to 1 John chapter 4. And as you turn to that, I'll remind you of things we've said in these previous sermons that John and his brother James were fishermen. They were in their family's, their father's fishing business when they became disciples of Jesus for at least two years of his public ministry. Jesus nicknamed them the Sons of Thunder, and from some character traits we see that come out in the Gospels, perhaps he called them that because they uh, were very self-centered when they began to follow Christ. They, they were also not afraid to make requests like, Lord, do you, why don't you call lightning and fire to come down on this village and destroy them for rejecting you? Jesus rebuked them. Uh, but we do know that as Jesus' ministry progressed that John probably was his closest closest earthly friend and when Jesus was dying on the cross he entrusted the care of his mother Mary to John uh, and uh, told him to treat her like that was his own mother. John is the only of the uh, disciples best we know that did not die a martyr's death from what we know from history. Uh, He's the only one that died of natural causes. By the time he writes this he's very old. He's not young John, he's old John. He's Grandpa John, and he writes and uses a phrase over and over, it's dear children. You'll see that phrase all through 1 John. And so he viewed them not only as his spiritual children, uh, and he was their pastor, uh, but also as a term of affection, because that's the phrase that was applied to John, is that 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 he was the disciple whom Jesus loved. So what a transformation that John went through when he became a follower of Christ, to be moved from a son of thunder to to the disciple whom Jesus loved. So there's hope for all of us. But we come to 1 John chapter 4. I'd like to read the first six verses. We'll look briefly at this as we come to the Lord's table. Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. This is how you can recognize the Spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. But every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming and even now is already in the world. You, dear children, are from God and have overcome them, because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. They are from the world and therefore speak from the viewpoint of the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God, and whoever knows God listens to us. But whoever is not from God does not listen to us. This is how we recognize the spirit of truth and the spirit of falsehood. That's as far as we'll go in this today. Let me pray before we look at it more closely. Our Father, we are dependent on your Holy Spirit to give us understanding and discernment as we look into your word. We pray now that you would meet our needs, that you would draw us nearer to you. Show us our real needs to be right with you, to grow in you, and then also help us with things that we feel our problems. And we pray that you would be glorified and that this would be treated accurately, that I, as your servant, would do that. In Jesus' name, amen. Let me give you a little background that you have to have to even to begin to understand these verses. The Bible tells us in the beginning was God. He has always existed without beginning, without end. He is eternal. And God is not contingent. He is not dependent on anyone or anything else. He is self-sustaining. He is solitary. Genesis, the book of Genesis, tells us in the beginning that God created everything out of nothing. 
So creation comes from God. Uh, we see that people come from God. He created all of these. And in addition to the physical world, the things we see, the plants and the, the earth and the oceans and so forth, God also created a spiritual world. And so we see the physical world, but we don't see the spiritual world. And in that spiritual world, part of the creation there was that he created a multitude of angelic beings. And all was well and good until this one particular angel, later named Satan, he decided to rise up against God. And he was able to marshal perhaps as many as a third of the other angelic beings to join with him. There was this uh, celestial warfare of some sort, and Satan and a third of the angels, now called demons, were cast out of heaven. In the book of Genesis, Satan comes in the form of a servant to our ancient parents, Adam and Eve. He tempts them to do what he had done to rebel against God, to question God, not to trust God, to view God as a liar and a deceiver. And they follow him and they disobey him, disobey God, that is, and spiritual death occurs that very moment. Now, in case you think you just walked into a science fiction movie, that's what the scriptures teach us about some of what it teaches us about the spiritual world. And we live, it also tells us, we live in a physical world, but the spiritual world is very operative. It's operative for good, and it's operative for evil. And so this is very critical background as we come to such passages that assume we know that in 1 John chapter 4. Let's just look, uh, try to do a quick flyover of these six verses. I'll focus on the first three. We're told here because in the early church there was an abundance of supernatural activity. There was speaking in unknown languages and tongues. There was healings. There was prophecies. And John wanted his readers, he wanted us to be discerning about determining the origin of these things, where they were coming from. And so here in verse 1, we're told not to believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. What's the origin of these spirits? So the emphasis is not so much on the character, but uh, whether it is false or genuine, but its origin, whether it comes from God or whether it comes from Satan, whether it's uh, angelic, whether it's demonic. And so we, right off the bat, you and I are told as believers, we have the responsibility to determine such origins. John Stott, in his commentary that many of you are using in the Sunday school classes as we've been studying 1 John, he says this, that unbelief, that is choosing not to believe, can be as much a mark of spiritual maturity as belief. In other words, as Christians, as we grow, we have to resist the temptation to be naive and gullible. And though some would think, well, you know, people of faith, if you're mature, you'll just believe anything. No. Choosing not to believe certain things is also a mark of spiritual maturity. Many of our words that have been good words in the past, they've been hijacked by our culture. Uh, they've been confiscated, and, and the meanings have been twisted. Think of the word tolerance. And people say, well, I'm for tolerance. Tolerance toward what? All things? Which things? And therefore, the standards aren't defined, and the word is reduced to meaning almost nothing. Someone says, well, I have great concern. Concern for what? Expressed how? Through redemptive opposition or through sympathetic endorsement? 
Or someone says, I have support. We support this. And we'll say, well, support for what? Behavior that is destructive and wrong? Or for a person who admits the behavior is wrong and is struggling to overcome it? So we come also to a word like discrimination. Now, I've always heard that word in a negative sense. It equals racism. It equals prejudice because of a person's skin color, typically. Uh, And yet, historically, it's a good word. If you look in the dictionary, as I did, uh, one of the definitions is the ability to distinguish by discerning and exposing the differences. And so today, it's sometimes used in a good sense, you'll say, for the discriminating connoisseur of, you know, certain food or or certain watches or jewelry or perfume. And so we kind of get it, but normally when we hear discriminate, we think, well, that's a bad thing. That means you're showing favoritism or, like I said, racism. Well, the Bible tells us that God wants us as his followers through faith in Christ to be discriminating. And that is when it comes to truth, we should be able to discern and to recognize and see similarities and differences. And so in that sense, the Holy Spirit brings about discrimination in our life. How do we learn this? Well, we have to know the truth, exposure to the scriptures. I believe in the ministry of preaching. I believe it's God-ordained, the public exposition of his word, that God uses it for all sorts of things. And I invest a lot of my life in the preparation and the delivery of sermons and in the whole ministry of preaching. But I will be the first to tell you that if you and I as Christians think that that is enough spiritual nourishment that I can get enough from one sermon a week to sustain me until the next Sunday, and that's all the diet from God's Word that I need, it does not work that way. You need a steady nourishment on God's Word, a steady diet. Whether it's reading or personal study or study in a group or listening to it on the iPod or whatever it is that you do, You need a regular intake of the Word of God, including sitting under the preaching of His Word. We also need, that helps us to to discern, but we also need wise counselors. We need people in our lives that can help us. Parents, teach your children to be discerning, spiritually discerning. I met with a young couple some time ago. I meet with couples for premarital counseling, and and, I had never met them. They they did not live here, but the... the, uh, the bride-to-be was very sharp mentally and very stated her opinions real clearly. And as we talked about family backgrounds as we do, I learned that she came from a, a large family where you were expected at supper, you say supper in Georgia, we say it in Alabama, it's dinner. At dinner time, each night when you came to the table, you were expected to enter into the conversation, you were expected to sp- express your opinions, and you were to be prepared to defend your opinions. And so the father each night would, would uh, allow them to talk on certain subjects. Then they would debate, and they would challenge one another. Why do you think that? Why do you think that is right? Why do you think that is wrong? And she said, we were not allowed to be passive. We were not allowed to say, I'm not interested, I'm going to my room. That's a learning of discernment, especially, I'm assuming, it's from a Christian standpoint. <clears throat> so when we are often, as Christians, represented or misrepresented as being uh, anti-intellectual, uh, brainless, ignorant, I view it this way. Since i become a Christian, I think we can face 
the world with both faith and discernment, whereas an unbeliever, I faced it with unbelief and denial. Now, which is better? Which is more rational? I think we should be discerning. It gives us a simple test. We say, okay, well, how do I know? How do I know the source of this, the origin of what's being taught? And he says in verse 2, this, he gives us the test. This is how you can recognize the Spirit of God. Okay, is he going to say they only baptize by sprinkling or immersion? Does a guy wear a robe? Or does he only use a King James Version of the Bible or what? No, here's the test. What do they say about Jesus Christ? What do they say about Jesus Christ? Has he come in the flesh from God? He says this is the test. This is the litmus test. We live in a culture where almost everybody acknowledges and wants to be spiritual. They want to be seen as, I'm a spiritual person. I believe in prayer and so forth. But it's very general, it's very vague. I was hearing Mark Driscoll, pastor at Mars Hill in Seattle, tell about being invited with a handful of other pastors just a few years ago to the studios of MTV at Times Square. And he said, we were invited, so he said, this is phenomenal. We got to go in and they, this director of marketing, this young, sharp woman, the way she was dressed, very articulate, very bright, was showing us around, saw these recording artists and different people, so were they saw where they uh, record these shows, TV shows, where all the junior high girls are screaming and everything. And he said, we walked all around that. And finally, at the end, he said, we went up to a boardroom, and there was a whole wall of windows that overlooked, he said, downtown Manhattan and the bay. You could see it all. He said, it's just magnificent. Big conference table. And their guide, this, this woman, the director of marketing, said, well, look, we've got about 30 minutes. Why don't, uh, why don't you guys ask me any questions you like to ask me? He said, we at MTV... We have done more demographic research on young people in America than any other company. Ask me anything you'd like to ask. Mark said, you know what was going to come from a group of pastors. And so one of the pastors said, well, what do you find about the spirituality of your viewers? And she went, oh, our viewers are very spiritual. All of our viewers are spiritual. They will tell you that they believe in prayer and answers to prayer. They believe in a spiritual world and a physical world. They believe that... uh, that after this life, there's another life somewhere else that when you die will be better. They believe in all of that. Then the next question asked by another fellow, well, who do they think God is? And she paused and then she said, they don't have a clue. Who do they pray to? What kind of spiritual world? I don't know. When you die and you think you'll go somewhere else, where will it be? beats me it's just spirituality who do you think jesus is that's the question and so he asked that what do they say here this prophet this false prophet or someone who's claiming to be a prophet from god he says the way you can tell the origin is what do they say about jesus and his origin is either it comes from the devil and that it doesn't mean that the person's possessed by demons or anything else, but the origin of that teaching is comes from the devil. That is, you, you don't need God. You, you, oh, you've got spirituality. You, you've got what you need. Just be a good person. Be nice, and so forth, and you'll be accepted by Him. That should cause us great concern when we hear that. And so, some of the false teachers were calling into question whether He was truly human. Now, if you go to a university today, most universities, and you take a religion class, and when you study about Jesus, you will be told, you'll be told that the whole idea of the deity of Jesus kind of arose over the centuries. 
that the early followers, the early well, during his ministry, they didn't believe that he was God, that that was something that kind of arose. That is wrong. Just read history. The first three centuries after the ministry of Christ, the issue was not whether he was God. What was the issue? It was whether he was a man. It was whether, how could God truly be human? And so anyone that raised the question, was he God, it was, the arguments were so sound, no one really even brought those up to any degree. And so it's only really more in our day and over the past, really since the 1500s, that people begin to question, well, was, was he really God? Like I said, first three centuries didn't even come up. It was, was he man? So that's why it focuses on that here. What do they say? Did they say that he came in the flesh? And so we need teachers to be proclaiming God's truth. And we need to measure the teaching according to scriptures, like the Bereans. The book of Acts tells us that the people in the city of Berea, the region of Berea, when they would hear Paul teach, they didn't just say, well, Paul said it, that settles it, I believe it. No, it said that they were more noble than some of these other listeners because they went after the teaching and they looked at the scriptures to see if what Paul said was true. They examined the scriptures to see if it was in line with scripture. And that's what we need to do. That's what you need to do. Whenever anyone comes to me and says, hey, we're moving, we're moving to another city, we're going to another church, what kind of church should we look for? Or some have come to me and said, we're leaving First Presbyterian Church, we're going to go somewhere else. I say, look, whether they ask for it or not, I say, please go to a church that teaches the Bible. And don't be deceived thinking if someone gets up and just does a nice little after-dinner talk that that's opening the Word of God. See if they really believe the Bible and teach it. Many of you here knew Gordon Reed. <clears throat> not that he's not still living, but he was the pastor here from 1980 to 1985. Uh, Dr. Reed has been a seminary professor. He's, he, he's done many things. I'm, I'm fortunate to count him as a friend. We rarely see each other, but we talk on the telephone periodically. I, Gordon Reed is older now, so way back earlier in his years and in his ministry, <clears throat> He followed a pastor in South Carolina at a church. The other pastor had been there for three years, and the other pastor had not believed in the truthfulness of the Bible. He was theologically liberal. And while he was at this church, this pastor, <coughs> the elders, the officers of the church, very much believed the Bible, and they would really scrutinize what was said from the pulpit. The patriarch of the session was Uncle Kevin Means, well, Uncle Means would sit and listen like a hawk to everything that that former preacher said, and then he would prepare his Sunday school lesson for the next week to refute what had been said in the sermon the week before. So this Uncle Means was just, I mean, he was loaded for bear. You say that in Georgia? He was loaded. All right. Uh, Gordon, that guy left, and Gordon Reed came. Gordon said for three years, uh, Uncle Means, this elder, sat and just like scrutinized his sermons for, for six months. After, after Gordon came after the other guy had been there, and then Gordon for six months, he would listen to him and he'd scrutinize everything. Then one Sunday, Gordon came to preach and they say, look back, and Uncle Means was on the back pew and he slept all during the sermon. And he walked up to him afterwards, and Gordon said to him, so, well, well Uncle Eddie Means, I, I, uh, I see you enjoyed the sermon today. He said, Gordon, I've been listening to you, and you love Jesus, and you believe the Bible, and you preach the Bible, and now I can go back to listening the way I used to. 
there must be a concern to discern between truth and error and the origin of where it comes from. All right, I must move quickly or briefly as we come to communion. The last four verses say essentially that discernment is a spiritual matter. It's not just an academic exercise. But when he says, you are from God and have overcome them because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is from uh, is in the world. This is not just a matter of knowing technical information about the Bible. It's not a matter of being smart or smarter than the next person. He's saying if the Holy Spirit indwells you, when you come to faith in Christ, the Holy Spirit comes to indwell you. It says, he who is in you, that Holy Spirit is greater than he who is in the world. So if the Holy Spirit dwells in you, and if you're a believer, he does, then the Bible knowledge that you have will not be wasted. But it will give you discernment and create in you a good conscience and a sincere faith. Now, I don't know about all of you, but probably many of you could bear testimony that when you became a Christ follower, when you put your faith in Christ and believe that he died for your sins, and you began to follow him, then you immediately had a discernment about spiritual things that you didn't have before. I know that was true with me <clears throat> back in junior high school. I don't mean I knew everything, but I still don't. And, and I, I don't mean deep truth. But there was, a, there was an awareness that this is from God and this isn't that had not been there before. It was like a sense, well, that's the Holy Spirit. And so that is one of the marks of being a believer. We've been saying that the letter of 1 John is written, he tells us, that we who believe in the name of the Son of God might know that we have eternal life. And he's given us certain signs of obedience, a love for God's word, a love for God's people. And now he's saying discernment from the Holy Spirit is one of the signs that you belong to God. That's an indicator that you've come to faith in Christ. And true prophets believe the Bible. But I want to leave you with a couple of applications as we prepare for communion. And that is I want to urge you to, to read, uh, study the Bible. Historically, Christians viewed the subject of study as a spiritual discipline. And they didn't limit it to the scriptures, but, but you and I, we, we need an intake from the Bible. I've already addressed that. I won't say much more. But, but, but you need uh, that. I, I live with an example, my wife, who is the most disciplined, committed person to personal devotional life I've ever met. Ever since the 30-plus years, oh, I know exactly how many years, I'll do the math in a minute, that we've been married. Uh, she, she is, it doesn't matter if she's gotten three hours sleep the night before, four hours sleep the night before, uh, early in the morning she's reading her Bible. She exercises regularly, and when she does, she listens to John Piper's biographical messages, that if you haven't listened to those, 20-plus of those from their pastor's conference on leaders from church history, she knows the church fathers and church historians uh, like the back of her hand. And she came to me to straighten out some of this sermon yesterday and said, you need, to, you need to either listen or read before tomorrow to the second half of John Piper's biography of J. Gresham Machen. <laughs> Why am I saying that? We need to read the Bible. And God in my life has given me a convicting example in my life that, that, that does that. And we, we need that intake, and it gives discernment. And I'd urge you to pray before you study, not just the Bible, but anything. Realize that study, in many ways, is a spiritual endeavor, for good or for bad. Students, 
I'd pray before you study your biology textbook or your psychology textbook, especially your psychology textbook, or before you read the Bible, before you study and ask that God would give you discernment to know truth from error, even if it's an unbelieving author, that you would have wisdom to pick up common grace insights that God may have given this person and, and not to be taken in by what is not truthful. Read the Bible and pray, and pray for application. In just a moment, we're going to sing as we prepare for the Lord's Supper, Alas, and Did My Savior Bleed. It's written by a man whose birthday is today, though he was born in 1674, Isaac Watts. Isaac Watts was converted in his 20s. Uh, he, he desired to be a preacher, but he ended up being more of a poet. And he wrote many of the hymns. And before we sing it, before you turn to it, most of the hymns that we sing by him, like when I survey the wondrous cross, joy to the world, and like this one, they are centered on Christ. They are centered on the work of Christ and the person of Christ. Let's turn in our uh, orders of worship to these selected verses of Alas and Did My Savior Bleed. And I invite you to stand as we sing together. <clears throat> 